Amanda. I'm Denise. And welcome to Disturbing Behaviors. Today we're going to be talking about the psychology and the laws regarding the crimes of Eileen Wernos. And we are joined by Spencer Cordell, local defense attorney. Thanks for having me. Spencer, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, since this is the first time you're joining us? Certainly. I am a criminal defense attorney in Fort Myers, Florida. I am board certified in criminal trial law by the Florida Bar. That means they've recognized me as an expert in criminal trial law. Uh, Before becoming a defense attorney, I was a prosecutor for a few years, and now I've been in private defense practice for several years after that. I've been the uh, president of our local FACDL, which is the Florida Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers chapter, and I'm the chapter rep to the statewide board as well. Very impressive. That's actually where I met Spencer was at the state attorney's office. I was his secretary for, I don't know what, like six months to a year before you left? About that, yeah. So, all right, Denise. Okay. I'm not an expert in anything. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, except for arguing, but, you know, that was just a natural gift. When it comes to the case of Miss Eileen Warnos, I think laws actually went against her. They were not in her favor. We're not doing that right there. We are not. No, no, no. So anyhow, I really feel that, first of all, all the child protection laws failed that child. We discussed that in her childhood. You know, what the abuse that she suffered that went on in her home. I'm sorry. My computer keeps wanting me to uh, update a scan snap scanner, which I don't have. So I don't know why it's doing that. But first of all, the child abuse laws, getting back to Eileen, the child abuse laws Had they been followed when she was a child and that intervention that we talked about before happened, we would probably not be in this situation. It would not have escalated to the point that it had. I also feel that because prostitution is illegal, that prevented her from actually seeking help when that first assault happened with the first murder. Now, that first victim has is he was a sex offender. He had gone to jail for that. He had been, first of all, shouldn't have been back out in the streets. That's my own opinion. Of course, Amanda, you and I have discussed this. I figure, you know, there is a solution for sex offenders. You can take your pick, 9 millimeter, 45. We want to go old school. I've got rope and a tree. I'm all for that. But I feel that because prostitution is illegal, it is treated as a crime, that when she was assaulted, she could not go to the police because they would not take her seriously. I think there's a lot to do with that. I think the fact that she would not be able to go to the police, even if she went to the police and said, he was assaulting me and I killed him in self-defense, she still would have been treated as a criminal. I agree. I think starting at that point. So I think it's a reality that uh, people, particularly in, in sex work industries, there's a stigma to that. Mm-hmm. And and when they're a victim of a crime, they know there's going to be that stigma. That absolutely discourages them from reporting, from being open with law enforcement, mm-hmm. and from even taking the kind of precautions that help prevent getting in a situation like that. Right. Oh, yeah. I fully agree. I feel that if it was decriminalized, 
then she would have had some type of like stand on. And, you know, even if she, oh, I had a thought. It was a very pretty thought. (laughs) (laughs) I just feel like what you said, if she had safeguards in place, if she had safe environments to do this, the legality of prostitution in and of itself you know, she was not able to seek treatment. She was not able to seek help. There's really nothing out there to help people. I'm sorry. That's, it's been a day. (laughs) It's been a day, but that's kind of where I'm going at it with this is that if she had the ability to go to the police and be treated like a victim, Mm -hmm. instead of like you asked for this, I think it's that mentality. Sex crimes are the only crimes you have to prove you are an unwilling participant. When you look at how people are interviewed when they've been robbed or they've been in an accident or their house broken into, they are automatically treated and put in the default setting of being the victim. But when somebody comes forward, whether or not they're a sex worker and they state they had been raped or they had been sexually assaulted uh-huh. in some way, the default then is, are you sure about oh, that? Are you sure? You know, and that's when somebody's history gets brought up. And in her case, if she had gone to the police and said, you know, yes, we had this consensual activity, money changed hands. But after this happened, you know, would the other victims have been spared? I think so. I think there's a strong possibility for that. I think that the first murder was, in my opinion, self-defense. But I think once she tripped that with all of her trauma, do I think the other ones put her in a situation where she was truly in danger? I don't know. Do I think that she was put in a situation where she felt she was in danger? Yes. Yeah. I think that's a big contributor to these crimes. I think that it just got to the point where she saw all men as predators. And when she was in that situation, it was the fight or flight response. I think that is really what happened there. I'm not, I mean, I know that a lot of them had, had been robbed. However, part of me kind of wonders if that wasn't an after effect. It's like, oh, shit, I just killed him. Well, he's not going to need this anymore, and I've got to survive. Kind of an in for a penny, in for a pound type situation, you know? Right. She already knows she's going to be in trouble for killing. You might as well rob him. Not like I'm justifying that, but advocating that, you know? But you're talking about a real phenomenon there. Mm -hmm. For instance, in entrapment law, if a cop, for instance, gets somebody to sell them drugs and traps them into selling drugs and they wouldn't have normally sold drugs, it's still a defense if they later on sell drugs again. The Supreme Court issued a ruling like once you get somebody over that line, once you turn somebody into a criminal, you can't go back and buy drugs from them again later on and say, oh, we didn't entrap them the second time. They did it willfully. Right. Yeah. Now, it's not going to be a defense in a self-defense type situation because she wasn't entrapped in the first place. It wasn't by the misbehavior of law enforcement that led her into that first crime. So she doesn't get that as a defense, but the same effect is there that Mm -hmm. she goes from maybe somebody who wasn't involved in, well, I guess she was involved in criminal activity because we've criminalized her sex work, her, her means of survival. And then she had to defend herself that led into other crimes. That point, the robbery is kind of a nullity, you know, and they probably end up, making it a feature of the case. Oh, she's out doing this for the purposes of doing the robbery. Going back to what Amanda said, there's a substantial likelihood 
that she was scared of all men at that point. Right. She had been so abused from childhood. She had been raped repeatedly by her grandfather, by her grandfather's friends, by her brother. Mm -hmm. And then as she became an adult, she was still raped. She was still victimized. And sex work was literally all she knew. So I think by the time this happened, she had a very severe case of PTSD. And it just got to the point where she saw all men in that situation as a threat. Now, at what point, now this ultimately ended up down here in Florida. What would you have said as her defense lawyer? Like, what would you have done? What would your defense strategy have been? Yeah, what would be a defense strategy here? It's a really difficult situation because without issuing my own opinion, because I don't, I'm not familiar enough with the circumstances to know if she really was justified in the first murder, if it, if it legally rose to the level of self-defense. And I'm agreeing with you that there's definitely evidence to support that and to argue that, but then to argue self-defense when there are other murders makes it a very difficult legal defense. And that's a strategy that the state can use something we call Williams rule evidence. Okay. It's also called similar fact evidence. We call it Williams Rue in Florida. And similar fact evidence says, well, if she's claiming that this one's self-defense, the prosecution can bring in evidence of similar crimes to try to further prove her culpability, using other crimes to prove her culpability on any of the crimes. So you go in there and say self-defense, and the state gets to bring in this similar fact evidence and say, oh, you want to say self-defense, but why'd you go kill this other person? Why'd you kill this other person? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it's not self-defense. It's not justified. You can see that's just her modus operandi as a serial killer. That's very prejudicial. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of evidence that can convict somebody. It can overwhelm what may be a valid defense. So... Well, let me ask you this. The flip side is, you know, the defenses that she's got to work with, you know, I didn't do it. I think they kind of coerced a a statement out of her, if I remember. And I think there were some questions about the procedures they used to get a a statement out of her. So don't quote me on that. But uh, if they've got enough evidence that she's the one who did it, then you've got to come up with something else. And self-defense is kind of the last man standing. You got to you got to go forward with that self-defense argument unless you've got something better to work with. And that was probably the best defense she had to work with. Right. Well, let me ask you this, because here's a couple of interesting facts about the case. So, you know, like I said, I truly believe that she had a severe case of PTSD. So now it's possible you've got the mental health. Uh, defense going on there. The second thing is that even though she committed seven murders, she was only ever prosecuted for the first murder for Richard Mallory. You know, that was the very first, that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, so to say. So knowing that information, does that change your answer? Well, we're still dealing with the same issue that, well, self-defense is, is, well, let's go bigger picture on this. Self-defense is tricky on a murder case because you've got a dead victim. You've got the, there's different levels of self-defense. I think of it like as a spectrum. There's threatening somebody, there's pushing somebody, there's using a weapon against somebody, there's using deadly force against somebody. 
And a murder is all the way at the heavy end of the spectrum. And therefore, for her force to be justified, it's got to be the force against her has to be deadly. That is, she has to have a reasonable fear of death or serious bodily injury coming to her immediately. And But doesn't the reasonable fear, isn't that really a perceived interaction? Because if, you know, I've got this childhood like she had where men were constantly abusing me. Now, it's possible that I perceive a serious threat of bodily harm, but... Who's to say that maybe I'm not quite reasonable because of my mental health issues? Well, that's not the law. You know, you can debate about the appropriateness because Florida uses a reasonable person standard. It's not would Eileen Warnos, who'd had all this trauma and all these things leading up to the situation, did she reasonably fear under her perception? It's would a reasonable person in that circumstance, be afraid and not just afraid because she's using deadly force. That reasonable man standard, that reasonable person has to be afraid of death or serious bodily harm. I think we could argue so that. Not, oh, sorry. I think we could argue that in the first case alone, the first victim alone, because of his violent background. Mm-hmm. And I think that if she had the ability to go to the police without fear of retribution and gone after that first victim, that first man, I think that we could have used that reasonable person, that reasonable defense, because wouldn't his background and his history then factor into that? Absolutely right. So it's a reasonable person in that circumstance. So you got a situation where she's a woman, she's weaker than he is. He's a dangerous person, a sex offender who's trying to beat her, rob her, da-da-da-da-da. So all of the specific circumstances of that incident definitely play into her defense, and that goes to her need to be to use deadly force in that circumstance. And so we can't say Eileen Warnos, who has these mental health deficiencies, is more afraid than a reasonable person. But they can argue, and they basically had to argue, that a reasonable person in these circumstances, who's a woman, who's weaker, who's there with a dangerous person, is reasonable in using that force. So she definitely gets to make that argument, or got to make that argument. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, honestly, I think that first murder was just a domino effect in her case. I, yeah. Like, when she got into his vehicle, she had no intent to harm him. She had the intent to have this transaction and go about her merry way. But I think at some point in time that changed after that event. I think that every time she went back into a car, she was automatically already afraid. I think then she went in with the intent of killing. And I think that's kind of what got her into all of this is that she just snapped after that first one, for lack of a better medical term. Mm -hmm. I think it was just... You know, she broke that barrier. You know, when we look at all these things, and I'm going to say this part of my little explanation here, I honestly don't feel that laws prevent crime. Laws are really the punishment for what happens. Your morality cannot be legislated. You cannot legislate morality for people. You are either you have that moral compass or you don't. Now, there are people who kind of skate on that, but. Honestly, I think that if you don't have it in you to want to harm people, you're going to have to be put under extreme duress to be put in that position where you do harm somebody. 
And I think with Eileen, that little barrier, that little thing that we have where we don't want to harm other people, I think that just broken her. And she just kind of went on a whole level of fuck it, you know? This is it. Every man that I've had in my life has hurt me, you know? I mean, we were talking about the childhood. My daughter is the youngest out of, you know, four. She's got three older brothers. The environment in which she was raised was that men are the protectors. Men are the safety. Now, you also know how to defend your damn self because there's not always going to be a man around. So the strong men, the real men, they're the ones that are protecting Eileen never had that. She had that every man is an abuser. And I think once she broke that seal and she broke that barrier, that was it. I feel bad for some of her victims. Her case is the only one where I feel sorry for her. And I don't feel like she really kind of got a good, a fair shake in it. She I'm just excusing her murder. I'm sorry, honey. What'd you say? I said she never had a chance. No, no. Oh, no. She was doomed from the word go. So now, taking the other position as a, in the prosecutor time frame, what was the prosecution's thought process like? I mean, when you have this kind of put in front of you, and you're looking at the perpetrator as a prosecutor, what kind of goes through your mind with that? And going way back and putting myself back in the, the prosecutor's shoes, you know, they're looking at the bigger picture. They've got prosecutors almost inherently end up being sympathetic to the side of the victim. You know, they're, they're not coming at this from 20 feet away, looking back at it and saying, oh, look at her trauma, look at this. They're looking at this and saying, I've got dead bodies here. And certainly the other victims were probably substantially more sympathetic than the first victim on the case. I'm guessing that they prosecuted the first case because that was their strongest case. That was the one where they said, you know, we can get her on this one. We don't need to spend our time prosecuting the other ones because, boom, we got a first degree murder here. We can go for our death penalty on that case by itself. And based on confessions and things like that, that was their strongest case. So they didn't pick this case based on the victim in the case, most likely. They're looking at it. We got a bad guy. We got a serial killer. We got we have seven victims. We need to throw the book at her. And probably felt that this case was the strongest way to do that. Probably had already got their minds made up that that's what they wanted to do before, because it's months down the road that she gets a, you know, the due process is going on, the discovery process, and her defense team starts developing these mitigating circumstances and this history, disclosing it to the prosecutor. By then, they're already set on trying to give this lady the chair. Mm -hmm. By the time they're even hearing this mitigating information, they're probably already on death penalty. She's the worst. And she probably was the worst case that this prosecutor had ever seen. Oh, yeah. You don't get a lot of serial killer cases. Right. Especially female serial killers. Well, you don't get any of those. But yeah, any pro maybe in the, the biggest prosecutor's offices in some big cities, they might see more than one real serial killer case. You get some people that, that might commit more than one murder, but to have a string of bodies... That's the worst person this prosecutor ever sees on their desk. And their mind is never going to be open to hearing about these mitigating circumstances and the terrible trauma that led her into this situation. Now, thinking about like her case in particular, now, do you think there would have been any chance? Do you think the prosecutor looked at her and said, well, maybe with some intense psychological intervention, she might be rehabilitated? Or do you think it was more of a situation of like, she killed seven people, we don't give a shit? Probably the latter. They probably said she killed seven people, even if she could be 
rehabilitated. We don't care. To further complicate things, in Florida, if you've got a first-degree murder, if you're convicted, you never get out of prison. Even if you don't get the death penalty, it's mandatory life in prison. You've got no parole. So the state is disincentivized from even considering the possibility of rehabilitation because she's sitting in prison no matter what the rest of her life anyway. Okay. Well, I'll get away from my opinion on mandatory sentences. (laughs) As a defense attorney, we can talk about that a lot of times. That's something we've recently seen with the Nicholas Cruz, the Parkland shooter. Mm -hmm. You know, a year, maybe two years ago, his defense team said, we want to plead guilty. If you'll take death off the table, he will plead guilty. And the state said, no, we're not going to do it. He's the worst person we've ever seen. We want to apply the death penalty. And so two years have gone by. They're prosecuting him. And finally, the defense team said, well, we're going to go ahead and plead guilty. We're not saying he didn't do it. We're just saying we want to present this trauma. We want to present these mitigating circumstances. Don't give him the chair. Don't give him the needle. Well, he was a minor. He recently pled out to it, but they're still going to have to prosecute the death sentence phase because the state is still trying to to kill him. He was a minor at the time, though, was he not? No, he had graduated. Oh. He's barely, yeah, I think he might have still been a teenager, but I believe. I think he was like 19. I want to say he was like 19. I believe so. Otherwise, death penalty wouldn't be on the table. That was my confusion. You know, under 18, can't give him the death penalty. 19, and now they won't consider life in prison because there's no possibility of parole in Florida. Random question. Do you think that mandatory sentences actually encourage additional violence? Let me explain why I'm thinking this. Is that, all right, let's say I snap. All right, correction. When I do snap, no, I'm just going to say this is a joke. Amanda, do we have a psychological term for snapping? <laughs> uh, Denise is feral. Yes, That's snapping. a psychological term. <laughs> no, okay. Now, you know where I live. I live out in the middle of nowhere. Now, let's say that I go over that edge. Whatever that edge is, you know, Dave doesn't put the toilet seat down for the 500th time, and that just pushes me over the edge. Now, not saying that I would, but if I snapped in that moment and I killed him, already now I'm going to jail. I'm going to jail for the rest of my life because Florida has said, if you kill somebody, you're going to jail. If you have people who are already like, fuck it, in for a penny, in for a pound, if I already know I'm going to go to jail for the rest of my life, what's to stop me from then going, okay, let me get my purge list out and take care of those people? So here's my two cents, and I'm not an attorney. This is my formal notice. I'm not an attorney. I do not have a bar number. Please do not come to me for legal advice. However, if you snap and kill somebody, that is not first-degree murder. That would be seen as probably manslaughter or second-degree murder, I believe. Am I correct, Spencer? Potentially, yes. To be first-degree, there's got to be something more than a snapping. There's got to be... Well, either like premeditation, there's aggravating factors, or it can be a first-degree felony murder, which is what you see a lot of times. And that was probably the Warnos situation where it's a murder committed in a dangerous felony like a robbery. Boom, first-degree murder. Boom, if you're convicted, life in prison with no parole. Okay. So you would have had to have thought extensively about how and when you were going to kill him. 
before he left that toilet seat down for the last time. Right. There's got to be something that raises yeah. it up to a first degree murder. But it doesn't have to be like murder of forethought. And that's the idea of the felony murder statute. If you're doing something inherently dangerous, like doing a robbery, doing a home invasion, and somebody ends up dying, that makes it more serious. That makes it a first degree murder, even if you didn't intend to kill the person. Mm-hmm. Even if they died by accident during the crime, it can be a first-degree murder even without intent in that circumstance. And boom, life in prison, no parole. So you got somebody who's now facing life in prison and no parole, and the cops are like, all right, peacefully surrender. Well, is he going to be likely to peacefully surrender knowing he's never getting out of prison? Or is he going to go Sundance and try to blast his way out of there? And does that mandatory sentence encourage more violence there's a real concern i think the bigger concern is that most criminals aren't thinking about that they're not weighing the consequences you guys mentioned it earlier that you can't legislate morality you can't if somebody's going to be a killer a law is not going to stop them the idea of minimum mandatory sentence is the deterrent effect that oh these criminals aren't going to go do that thing if they know that it's got a 10-year min-man or a 20-year min-man or something like that. But the reality is they're desperate people. They're high on drugs. They're in severe mental state that they're doing these horrible things. They're not going, well, is that a 20 or a 25-year min-man? <laughs> That's generally not part of the thought process. Yeah, yeah I, mean- I like to think about when I first moved to Florida – the 1020 life statute hadn't been around that long and they used to advertise it. They had radio commercials. They had billboards and bumper stickers saying, use a gun, you're done. And they had slogans and everything like to try to deter people from doing it. Well, they stopped spending money on these ads. So now the kids out there are going 1020 life. What's that? And they're like, there's no way around it. Guess what? If you don't know about it, it's got no deterrent effect. Now you're a, I got a 17-year-old right now who's facing you know, a 10-year min-man. Nobody got hurt. He's never done anything before in his life. He's a teenager whose brain hasn't matured, but they charged him as an adult. And the consequences very, very severe. They're, the consequences are worse for that than somebody who intentionally does something if he didn't happen to have a gun or something. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I agree. I think that it should be based upon, you know, there shouldn't be a minimum mandatory sentence for for things. It should be case-specific, you know. Yeah, mandatory minimums take discretion away from our prosecutors and our judges. And as a prosecutor, I didn't like that. I didn't like them telling me, taking away my ability to make a decision on the case. And sometimes it comes back to bite you in the butt. Because you got a case that's got a min-man and say, well, this is the best offer I can make. And so the guy goes, well, that's a terrible offer because of the min-man. I'm going to take it to trial and you can't prove it or a witness doesn't cooperate. The guy walks scot-free and gets nothing instead of putting him in rehabilitation to try to keep him from committing another crime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I feel that way, especially when it comes to like, I know we're getting a little off topic here, but when it comes to like drugs. Right. You know, but if you put drugs and sex work in kind of the same category as, you know, victimless crimes. And now I know people are going to start screeching. I am not talking about men and women because it happens to men, too, who are being trafficked. I am not talking about individuals who are under the age of 18 performing sex work because children cannot consent. And until you're 18, you are a child period, point blank, end of that story. But I'm talking about people who are grown, 
they are adults. If somebody makes a decision, now I happen to be friends with individuals who are in the sex work industry. You can check one out. She is on Twitter. She's a very outspoken advocate for the decriminalization of it. She goes by Molly Smash. She used to be on Facebook. She's been permazocked, but she's an absolutely amazing individual. She actually wrote a book on sex work, and it's on Amazon, and she's incredibly intelligent, but she chooses the work. She does adult films. She does the dominatrix. I forget all the initials, so I'm not going to say them because somebody's going to come back and go, that's not right. And I'm going to be like, I know, I'm guessing. So, but, you know, you talk about the women who choose to do that. You know, what I don't understand when it comes to sex work is that prostitution is illegal. But if you turn a camera on and you videotape it, then it's legal. I mean, that makes sense. I don't understand what two consenting as adults do. And the money changes hands, that's illegal. But if two consenting adults do whatever and money changes hands, but there's a camera running, now it's not a crime. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to make that one make sense. I agree. But I think that's kind of what went against her. I mean, if sex work was decriminalized and she had access to health care, she had access to mental health. If she had access to, hey, this individual hurt me, and she could go to the police and be treated as a victim instead of as, well, you were asking for it, I think that there would be six people who would still be on the earth. Or if they weren't, it wouldn't be from her. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I really feel like that's kind of where our issues are with this. Right. Right. That she reports it. And her explanation of it being self-defense is then more credible because she's not hiding out from the cops and doesn't, A, continue to kill other people. And then when she goes to trial, her explanation of it being self-defense is more credible because they don't get to bring in similar fact evidence to try to convict her, not on what happened here, Mm -hmm. but trying to use the other cases to convict her. Right. Yeah. I think that the way she was kind of portrayed had that, you know, she was not a sympathetic character witness on the stand for herself, like the way she behaved in court. And I think all of that was, I spent my entire life having people beat me and rape me and do all this stuff. What does it matter now? Like you guys have already made up your mind that I'm a monster. What does it matter? And I think that kind of hurt her herself. And I also think I'm going to ask you about this too, Stephen. I think her looks had a factor. I think the way she looked had a factor. If she had been an attractive female, I think that people would have had a little more sympathy for her. But I think when you look at the pictures, she's not a pretty girl. Yeah. And that's realistically likely a factor. That's something we deal with as defense attorneys all the time is how a person's going to be perceived by a jury. Attractiveness, a big factor in that. There's a lot of other stuff. You know, race is a factor. The jury pool where people get selected is a factor and how open they're going to be to hearing about sex work and the other things that are going on with that. All of that, the human element of the jury trial factors into how they perceive her testimony, how credible they make her. And all of that worked against her. She was not an attractive lady. She had a really rough life. She didn't probably look a lot like the the people who were deciding her fate. And she's going to be less sympathetic when they do that. Now, 
I was actually called for jury duty, which I was really excited about. When I appeared at the court, I already knew kind of walking in that they were going to dismiss me. One, I'm a social worker by education and trade. I know they don't like social workers because we either go one of two ways. We are either really, really sympathetic to the defendant or we are burnt out and like lock them up. I'm also a libertarian and nobody wants to argue with the libertarians because, you know, we do believe in jury nullification and, you know, if there's no victim, there's no crime. But I was dismissed because it was a drunk driving accident. An individual had been pulled over for driving under the influence. I was dismissed because I had somebody who was killed by somebody under the influence. And they were like, yeah, you got to go. One of the funny things about that, and I swear I have a point, I swear. After I had spoken about that and I was talking about that on like social media and everybody, I had a lot of people come to me and go, you should have just stayed on there. You shouldn't have said anything. Now, and I said, absolutely not, because whether or not I agree with a law, whether or not I think a law should be valid, I still believe you should have a fair and just trial, that you should have impartiality in that. And I was not going to be impartial. Now, I found out later that his defense was when he got pulled over, he was having a diabetic episode. Now, being a clinical social worker and working in nursing homes and working with the elderly, I know what low, you know, when the blood sugars get a little crazy, thing people can, and it can look like they are under the influence. I know that. But I also know in the back of my head, and I, and I try to treat drug addiction as a health issue, but in the back of the head, it was this junkie shot up, got behind the wheel of the car and murdered my friend. So I was not going to be impartial. So, yeah. you know... When you're looking at a jury pool, what are the type of people are you looking for? Are there certain vocations that are a little more sympathetic to that? Or is it just kind of like an individual catch as catch can? It depends on the type of case it is, where you might be a great jury for me. On a, if I'm representing a prostitute and there's no victim, you're the juror I want. But on a, a DUI case, when you've had a friend who was killed by an impaired driver there's a chance that you're not going to be impartial, so you're not the juror I want. So you really can't go just by vocation because, as you said, social workers can go both ways. Mm -hmm. They can be completely empathetic or they can be burned out on it and just tired of hearing it. Mm -hmm. And it may depend on my case because mm -hmm. if I've got a real sympathetic person and that's what I want to lean into, whereas other cases on a self-defense case, my guy may be a jerk, but... I want to lean into that and say, yeah, he's going to defend himself. That's his right to do it. <laughs> and different jurors work for different cases. I just had a case where a self-defense case where my client was just, I mean, so the cops take him back to the station and interview him. He's like, you're, you're darn right. I'd do it again. <laughs> and the prosecutor's like, oh my gosh, this is a great case. And I'm like, not if you don't get the right jurors. Because there are a lot of jurors who said, you better defend himself and you better do it again. I'd do the same thing. Like he would have been really sympathetic to the right kind of juror. So it really is fact specific. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a case of fuck around, find out, which, you know, I'm all about that. Because you, I live out here in the middle of nowhere. You come out here, I don't know who you are. It's not going to end well for you. you know? My guy literally said... He was in his own yard. He's like, bring it. And the guy did. I got the neighbor from across the street going, I heard the other guy saying, I'm going to kill you. And I'm like, that's reasonable use of force right there. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. 
suffice to say that I'm not going to trial on that. But <laughs> well, that's textbook standard ground, is it not? There's so many, and then, but for Eileen Mornos, you know, you don't want the person who's leaning into it. You don't want the law and order type. Mm-hmm. You know, some law and order types are like. It's my castle. I'm going to defend it. But they're so law and order. They're like, but she was hooking. She's a dirty hooker anyway. Yeah. And yeah. and would already have that preconceived negative attitude or that we've been talking about the whole episode today. Yeah. That, so you got to weed out the people who are going to have a problem with that. You got to weed out the real law and order types. And you may want to shoot for the impasse, the people who are going to be because, you know, a big part of her case was explaining that trauma and why she was scared. And you got to get as difficult as it was with her to try to get somebody to be empathetic with her. That was the biggest problem with her defense is it's tough to do that on a murder case. It's one thing, you know, like, oh, the guy said something nasty to me and I slapped him or, oh, I shot the guy and robbed him. That, it's harder to make that person empathetic. And then the prosecutor brings in William's real evidence about other stuff she's done. Yeah. I don't know. I think they got to bring in evidence of her other murders. Yeah, they and did. so you're sitting there saying, oh, she's justified. And the prosecutor's saying, no, that's her modus operandi. She claims that so she can go out and, and rob people and kill them. Yeah. That's horribly prejudicial information. Okay. So do okay. you think, sorry. Do you think um, no, because we're just talking the- about prejudicial information now? One of the individuals who testified against her at her trial was actually she referred to him as her brother, but he's technically her uncle. When she was adopted by her grandparents, they still had a minor child in the house. Now he left, and when she was nine. And then came back to her on her trial and testified against her going, oh, well, you know, she wasn't being abused. So my question is, he was gone. He was not there. How was he allowed to come back in and kind of testify to say that didn't happen, you know, when he wasn't there? Right. If the prosecutors can convince the judge that it's relevant, I mean, relevance is your basic touchstone for what evidence comes into court. And normally stuff like that wouldn't come in, except in her case where her defense was making that an issue. So they bring out her history and her trauma, then it's relevant for the state to try to counteract that. Now, somebody who hadn't seen her since she was nine years old, the relevance is really tenuous, but that's one of the situations where you hear on TV shows, oh, they opened the door. Well, that's probably what happened there is the defense team got into her history and her trauma and opened the door to evidence saying, oh, no, she wasn't really traumatized. You know, this isn't a recent development. And as long as it is, it's tenuous. But since they were getting into her childhood and her traumatic history, then that's probably the only reason that got to to come in. And so as a defense attorney, do you open that door and let that person testify you have to to try to explain her trauma and to make her sympathetic to the jury. So they had to open that. They had to walk through that. Unfortunately, the prosecutor brought through some additional information that was negative after the door was open, but they had to go through that door. But you think that you would be able to counteract that information considering he left the house when she was nine years old. How would he have known what happened in that home after he left? And I'm sure they pointed that out. That's one of those where the state didn't convict her based on this guy who left the home when she was nine and his testimony. 
But that state's testimony blunted some of the traumatic testimony in her favor. It blunted some of the sympathy they're trying to build for her. They needed overwhelming sympathy for her to overwhelm the fact that she killed a guy and killed other people. And they got or tried to kill other people. I don't remember, like I said, what Williams rule evidence came in, but they needed overwhelming sympathetic evidence to convince that jury not to convict her in that case. And that was just one of the series of things that the prosecutor would have brought in to chip away at that, to kind of, you know, blunt that evidence as much as they can piece by piece. So with this happening, like in early 90s, do you think that there could have been a different outcome had this occurred today? It's hard to say that. We're still dealing with, well, we got to stay your ground now, but one important legal change that came with stand your ground is not just the stand your ground, but it eliminated an element of Florida's jury instructions about the duty to retreat. Because prior to stand your ground, the law of self-defense was you couldn't use deadly force unless there was no way out of it. And that almost shifts the burden to the defendant to prove that they had no choice but to do that. And so stand your ground says, no, you've got a right to defend yourself. And it eliminated that language for the injury instruction that said that she had to prove that there was no ability to retreat, basically. So that would have worked in her favor since passing stand your ground. Still, the challenge, it's one of those where, unfortunately, you know, like she did it. She she gave confessions about having done it. And they had enough evidence to prove that she was the one. So she was stuck with this self-defense argument, which is probably the right argument, but it's very hard to prove. And then they still probably would get to bring in the Williams rule evidence. That is the similar fact evidence. And she's still not a sympathetic person. It's still would have been very, very hard to prove. And I think people nowadays are more aware of trauma and how it affects people because we've had the Me Too movement and we've had more education about domestic violence in what has been 25 years. And they might be more open to being sympathetic toward her. They might be better primed. The the potential jury now might be better primed, listen to and hear that testimony about her trauma and, and maybe make her more sympathetic. It would still be a really tough case to beat that case, but she probably have a better chance now than she did at the time. Okay. All right. How much of an impact do you feel that media has on these type of cases as far as like the newspaper reportings, the headlines? Again, it's very case specific mm-hmm. and I didn't live in Florida at the time of her case, so I don't know how pervasive it was in, in the area. Uh, you know, we had um, a case here, uh, it's been 10, 15 years ago, the, the gateway killing Amanda would remember. I do remember that one. And they moved to change venue on it. The judge questioned the jurors and they said they hadn't heard that much and they could put it aside. And they went to trial on it, found him guilty. And then one of the jurors gave a an interview afterwards saying, oh, yeah, I'd heard some stuff in the media. And so I already knew he'd done or something like that. And they ended up having to do a whole new trial and do it out of county. So negative media coverage, and I'm sure 
you know, a serial killer case, especially somebody as or a case as notorious as Eileen Warnos's was, is likely to prime the jury against her. It's likely to say, oh, you know, I haven't heard anything about the facts, but I know she's the one who supposedly killed a bunch of people. It's hard to put that out of your mind, and it's hard to find jurors who really haven't heard about that. Yeah, yeah, they did change. You know, they did change venue. They ended up they, doing the trial in Deland, okay. Florida. So they they got out of the immediate area, so that hopefully the local press hadn't covered it, and then and. It got some national press, so that would have helped. You know, like Casey Anthony, and that was another Florida case. Mm-hmm. How, where do you go that where people haven't heard of Casey Anthony? You know, even moving out of county doesn't necessarily remove the taint of media coverage. With Casey mm-hmm. Anthony, they kept it in, I think it was Orange County. I believe so. But they brought in a jury from another county. They did the jury selection in another county and brought them back so all the witnesses didn't have to move. And that helps. The, you know, keeping jurors who may already have heard facts or made up their mind about it definitely helps but it's really tough to do on a high profile case like this one and the things in the media tend to be really bad about eileen warnos or, or cases like that murder cases they're like oh my gosh you know they called her monster yeah. they named the movie monster yeah. because they yeah. demonized her so much and you're a jury going into that and maybe you haven't heard monster but that's the tone of the coverage of the case and it's hard to insulate the jury from hearing that, and it's hard to keep that from affecting their opinion on the case. We do the best we can in the court system, but you can't always keep it all out. Yeah, well, right. I mean, she had articles in the New York Times when she was arrested. I mean, like you said, it was an, it's one of those cases now, your standard, you know, like I go back to like, you know, if I shot Dave, that's not going to make national, that's not going to make national news. It's just going to be Florida, unless we were doing something really crazy, putting Florida back on the map, because, you know, Florida is going to be Florida. Then in that case, it would be like Florida woman. But with her case, because of the unusualness of it, and we already know that female serial killers are very rare, very, very rare. So she was an anomaly that way, and she made national headlines. But when you do like a Google search of that, just do the images. There is... Some of the pictures they have, she's smiling, but you can see she did not have access to good dental. She did not have access to good health. You could see that in her face. And yet some of them, they're smiling, but the way she's painted in there was like, oh, she's, she's smiling. She has no remorse for what she did. And then I think the most iconic image of her is she's got her hands in handcuffs and she's got the chain up under her neck. And that they kind of ran with that. Now, how much as a potential juror, if I saw that, first of all, I would have to say, yes, I saw this stuff in the papers, which is why they'd be like, yeah, you're not on this jury. But you think about your average reasonable person that you put on a jury. If they've seen that image or if they see her do that, that's not going to have a positive impact on her. Uh, on her outcome above your opinion of them. You know, if you, the first time you're encountering somebody, they're acting like the monster. They're acting like this feral creature. You're going to be like, yeah, that, that does not need to be out in society. Yeah. And they shield that from the jurors in the courtroom. You know, a juror should never, and they'll, you know, and you see defendants in handcuffs and shackles and stuff like that. 
Uh, that should never be in front of a jury. And they try to shield that from the jury. So they, on the trial day, they unshackle most people. There are some dangerous people. They can't unshackle. So then they try to cover it up or hide it or something like mm-hmm. that. And they dress them out and try to, and the, you know, the defense attorney tries to put their best foot forward. So at least in the courtroom, you don't get the, the perjurative mm-hmm. images of shackles and things like that. But, you know, she'd probably been sitting in jail for a couple of years by the time it got to trial. She probably wasn't looking her best. Yeah. And she had all this history and the lack of dental work. And sometimes your best foot is still not that sympathetic of a yeah, best right. foot forward. And then you try to weed out people who have seen her picture in the media, people who have seen the New York Times, people who have read those stories. But like in the Gateway case here, people slip through. So it's entirely possible that a juror had seen some of that and maybe even forgotten it, but subconsciously it was in there. Yeah. So in the courtrooms, the courthouse system, we tried to limit that from affecting the jury. They're supposed to make their decision on the facts, the testimony and the, and the evidence that's presented in a courtroom, not the stuff they hear out, so the inadmissible stuff they hear outside a courtroom. But the reality is people hear things, especially when it's, all over TV, radio, newspapers, and nowadays the internet. That wasn't a, a factor back then, but... Right, no, not but 91, to, yeah. That wasn't a big yeah, thing. Yeah, it's tough to keep whatever media coverage it is completely away from jurors. Now, she was asked to be excused from the sentencing portion. Is that... I, and I'm going to be honest, I, I just kind of glanced through that, and I meant to go back to it, but my brain's a squirrel crossing traffic. We do what we can with it. But... She asked to sit out of the sentencing portion of that. Is that something as a defendant, is that, do you have the ability to go, you know what, I don't even want to hear it. Like, is that something you're allowed to do? I mean, I'm just kind of curious about that. The actual pronouncement of sentence, I don't know if I've ever heard of somebody waiving their pronouncement of sentence, but the sentencing hearing itself, and particularly on a a capital case, hers was probably several days long. And so it's unusual for somebody to ask to be excused. But ultimately, it's the defendant's due process we're worried about. It's the defendant's right to be present at trial. So generally, a defendant can waive their presence at a stage of the proceeding. Now, obviously, they're not going to be able to give testimony if they're not there. Obviously, the judge is going to want them there as much as possible, particularly for when he actually hands down the sentence. He's going to want to say, you know, Ma'am, the jury has found you guilty. Ma'am, I am sentencing you to this. You know, you want the person there for that. But it's unusual. It's theoretically her right to do it. It's probably not in her best interest to look, because it gives the impression of looking dissent, probably because she couldn't deal with the trauma of it. It was probably, she was just overwhelmed and couldn't handle that. But it doesn't look good. You want to be in that courtroom looking as sympathetic as possible when the judge hands down that sentence most of the time. I really feel like at that point in time, she was just done. I think she just got to that point where it didn't matter anymore. You know, she had basically been taught her entire life she didn't matter. Her feelings, her emotions, her input, she did none of that matter. She was not a valid person. Her feelings were not valid. Nothing. I think that was the point in time that she was just like, you guys have labeled me the monster. I'm going to be that monster. We're done. What I find very interesting about Eileen, when you compare her to other serial killers, you compare her to like Ted Bundy. 
Ted Bundy was also not that attractive. I don't know where people come up with, oh my God, he was hot. No, I've seen pictures. He is not. And I'm not knocking you. If you think he's hot, you He was popular with the ladies, dude. You guys stacks of love letters, apparently. Well, people... We, that's a whole other episode. We're going to talk about that later. <laughs> talk about that kind of shit. But he was charismatic. You know, he was charismatic. Yeah. He was somebody who could talk his way into these things. He worked on a freaking suicide prevention hotline, you know, and was good at it, you know. So you could see where he could kind of attract his victims, where he had that, you know, he would use a, a ruse. You know, broken arm, you know, help me find my dog. And yes, I would be the one, oh, you have puppies in your car? I'll come along, you know? <laughs> he would have loved my dumb ass. But Eileen lacked those social skills. So it's, to me, that's very interesting. And, you know, in trying to, to tackle this portion of it without people going, well, you're bashing men. No, some men just kind of out themselves. You know, it's, here she was. I mean, these guys looked at her, and again, she's not that conventional pretty. She's not, you know, this is not Julia Robertson, pretty woman. You know, when you looked at those pictures of her, conventionally not an attractive woman, you know, and not saying that she was ugly, but yet she was able to get men to stop and say, yes, I will pay you for these sexual acts. So I think that kind of is interesting to me because... You know, she didn't have those social skills. She didn't have that charisma where she could charm people. It was literally like, I'm here. I will suck your dick for 20 bucks. And guys were like, get in. You know, like, <laughs> of course, I don't think she really needed. Like, did I get into <laughs> I don't think she necessarily needed to be charismatic or have those social skills because she had worked as a sex worker since she was 11 years old. Mm -hmm. So that was all she knew. This was what she was good at. So I don't think she necessarily needed those social skills or those ruses. She just had to say, I'll suck your dick for 20 bucks. And that was that. And men lined up. (laughs) We're like, take my money. So I mean, and again, I'm not, and I do know that in her series of crimes, a lot of times she was hitchhiking and they picked her up under the guise of hitchhiking. And then it involved into a sex for money situation. So I will give that. But like I said, it was just kind of interesting how she was able to kind of get away, you know, I don't know. She was just able to commit these crimes in the first place. So. All right. Well, honestly, I think that's going to be the end of our episode today. I just wanted to thank Spencer for having us out today. And (laughs) be sure to join us next week. And we'll talk about the social media of Eileen Warnos. And we will see you then. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much.